Uh, he mentioned both X-29 as well as City to City. And he described City to City as a, a network. And in one sense it is, but not in the same sense that X-29 is. So in fact, X-29 has begun to describe themselves, and you'll hear more about this this evening, as a family of churches, and it's a growing family of churches around the world, although it, it started in the U.S., they're now working on, in any number of different places around the world. And it really is a great alternative. If, if, if you're not embedded in a denomination or in, a, in some sort of a tight network of churches, Acts 29, I think, can really serve as a home for you to have accountability, to have fellowship, to have encouragement, you know, all, all those kinds of things. City to city isn't like that. In one sense, although we're, we're doing a little, little something different in North America, but in one sense, you can't really join city to city. You can become part of it, but it's not like you leave something else and join this. Actually, city city likes to see itself as sitting underneath any number of networks, churches, denominations, or whatever. And our goal, our dream, is that we can help church leaders, churches, networks, denominations plant effective gospel-centered churches in the cities of the world. That's, that's really what we're about. So, so there, there's not a real sense in which we want you to become part of us, although we'd love to become friends you know, with, with, with all of you, and we'd love to come underneath what's going on in Lagos or in Accra or any number of cities within West Africa and really see the gospel just literally run wild through the, through the, through the streets here. But um, so, so, that, so that's a little bit about, uh, about City to City. So um, if, uh, what, what I want to do today is, um, in fact, let me, let me turn you to the scriptures first. If, if you, if you want to follow it, I'll, I'll read it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. And I'm actually only going to take my talk out of a couple of words in, in this passage. But the Apostle Paul is, is writing, obviously, to the church at Colossae. And here's, here's what he said. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in all of its truth. So the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, continuing to increase throughout the world. That's, that's what Paul is, 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 is saying uh, uh, in, in, in this passage, which I find to be a, a very interesting statement and in one sense extremely encouraging. Um, but, but let me ask you, what, what do you think Paul had in mind when he made that statement, that the gospel is continuing to bear fruit and continue to increase you know, throughout the whole world? The whole world. You know, the world that he knew really was the Mediterranean, you know, the Roman Empire. I don't know if he knew that India existed, or he, he didn't know of, of East Asia, China, and all of that, you know, or of the so-called Americas, North and South America, or any of that. So he's describing the world that they knew at that time, what that they used to call the known world. Obviously, they knew of Africa, by the way. They, they were very, very cognizant of Africa, although maybe not the whole thing. But he's describing a phenomena, a phenomenon that was occurring 
And essentially, that phenomenon was, so he was reflecting on what he, had exp what he was experiencing and observing. But he had watched the gospel advance from Jerusalem to Antioch. From Antioch, and obviously he's involved in this, through the cities of Galatia. You know, from Jerusalem and Antioch to Asia Minor. You know, th and this is where Colossae is. It's the, 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 the churches of Western Turkey today. And then they saw the, the, the gospel advance to Europe, Philippi, Thessaloniki, or Th Thessalonica, you know, and, and down through uh, Athens. And even though he hadn't been there yet, it jumps to Rome. So a church is actually planted in Rome long before Paul or Peter ever get to Rome. There's, there's, a, there's a church. And he's watching this, this gospel spread almost like a virus throughout, throughout the world. And what I find to be kind of fascinating about that is that it was essentially a, it, the gospel was spreading from one city to another, city to city to city to city to city. The, the, really, the spread of the gospel, particularly in the first century, and really, the, I would say, the first 300 years of, of the existence of Christianity as we know it, was essentially an urban phenomenon, okay? Many people don't, really don't realize that. But by, by the year 300, just before the Edict of Milan, where Constantine announced that Christianity was now a legitimate religion, a legal religion within the, within the, the, the Roman Empire, by the, by the year of 300, at least this is what Rodney Stark, a sociologist, historian, uh, re reflected, they believed that half of the population of the cities of the Roman Empire had all come to real faith in Christ. Half the population. Many people in the rural, in the countryside, in, in those situations, had not. In fact, we, we use a term today, uh, you know what the term pagan means? P-A-G-A-N, pagan. We, we, in our minds, it means unbeliever, right? But the root word, the, 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 the Latin word, paganus, it means rustic, rural person, farmer. That, that's what it actually means. It doesn't have anything to do with unbelief. But the, 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 the reason why they began using that term was in the countryside, they were still bowing down to idols. They still all had, had their little family idols. So if you were out in the country, you were an unbeliever. If you were in a city, you were a believer. That was, that was almost the, 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 you know, the, the, the way it was described, which, which I find to be just kind of a, a, a fascinating thing. But well, we know the history beyond the Apostle Paul, beyond the, the, the apostolic time, and how Christianity literally became... You know, spread across it, the, the real entire world. It began, it eventually it would dominate Europe, it would dominate Africa, it would dominate both North and South America, and eventually now even today, it's beginning to dominate most of Asia. I mean, it's just kind of an incredible thing that how the gospel has spread throughout the entire world. And uh, Tim Keller pointed this out uh, about six months ago. I was listening to, to one of his talks. I've listened to a lot of Tim's talks. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I rarely hear him preach, which is, which is kind of funny. But I, but, I, but I was hearing him describe Christianity as really the only real global religion. It's the only religion that has a very, very significant uh, representation on every single continent. Islam is essentially a 1040 phenomenon, okay, you know, the, the latitudes across North Africa, you know, through, throughout the Middle East, all the way over through, through Indonesia. Hinduism is primarily a subcontinent religion. Buddhism, Taoism is essentially Eastern, e Eastern Asia. And, and you can kind of go through the whole thing, but Christianity is the only one that has really a major foothold on every single continent, even Antarctica. 
I think there's Christians in Antarctica. We, we, have, we haven't yet established a church in Antarctica, but, but we're thinking we, we should send our president, our CEO, Steve Shackelford, down there to, to start a church. <laughs> but, um, but anyways, when, Paul, when, when the Apostle Paul states what was happening in the first century in the Mediterranean world, and what, what, of course, what they regarded as the whole world at, at, that, at that time, um, uh, he, you know, he is describing something that he was observing. And that, that, that was not only happening in those days, it continues to happen now. In fact, I'm kind of amazed at, 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 at what I see happening in, in, in the world today. In a, in a very similar way, the gospel is, in, in one sense, re-spreading, but, but, but spreading anew in places where it really hasn't been known before. Uh, and it's spreading primarily through cities across the world. Even where, city, even where Christianity has begun to wane, and this is what we're observing in Europe, is the, that the gospel is beginning to take root again in Europe and bringing new life to Europe through the cities. Again, not in the countryside, not in the small town. Churches are dying. Churches are closing. Buildings are no longer being used for, for religious purposes in, in, in so many different places. But in the cities, Christianity feels very, very much, um, very much alive. And one of the, the great uh, privileges, I think, that we as an organization have is City to City is playing a role in that. I think we're playing a role. You know, there's a lot of other things. I think the Lord is very much at work in our world today doing some new things in relation to, to cities. In fact, what I want to say is, is I think the Lord I thi is beginning to bring spiritual awakening to the world through the cities. And we're, re we're actually really praying for that. But for sure, what the Lord has done is he has begun to awaken the church to the need for an opportunity for ministry within cities. It's, it's really happened in the last 20 years or so. All of a sudden, it seems like the church in North America has, has aw awakened to the reality that, that the church really needs to give a high priority to ministry within cities. Some of you may know this, but in our, in our country, uh, from the 1950s onward, in effect, the church abandoned the city. With the invention of the automobile, or, the, or really the common use of the automobile, and, and the creation of roads, it, many people were able to leave the city and move out to what we call the suburbs, the suburban areas. They could escape the dirt, the violence, you know, the poverty, you know, all the confusion and noise of the city, and they could live in these kind of cloistered environments where everybody was like them, where they were safe, you know, and they could withdraw, in essence, from really, really interacting in the world. And that was tragic. Because, in effect, when the church moved out, now, the African-American church was there, and it stayed. And it has maintained the ministry of the gospel in just amazing ways. Same, too, with the Latino church. But for the most part, much of the Anglo church left, and literally left, left the city behind and didn't pay attention to it. And it's only in the last 20 years or so that all of a sudden the church has awakened we're moving back into the city. Now, literally, people are moving back into the city. But churches are, are beginning to really focus on cities again. And because of it, we're seeing some kind of ama uh, amazing things that are taking place uh, uh, within our worlds. One of the amazing things I, th I, I think in relation to this new kind of recapturing of a vision for, for cities is that um, the cities provide us with what I would regard as to be uh, and, and kind of an unprecedented opportunity. In fact, it was interesting that, that um, Femi 
uh, ended up talking about, uh, you know, some of the eschatological issues. Uh, you know, the and and for for uh, for for whatever reason, a lot of us no no longer really talk much about the second coming, the imminent return of Christ. You know, the you know the, the these kinds of things, and it's always a little been a little curious to me. To try to you know uh, to try to figure out where are we in that process, when is Jesus going to come back again? And a lot of times when I hear the the negative discussions about how terrible the world is and the you know where the the church is in decline in these places and corruption you know in at every level of society and, and these kinds of things, you know many people are saying you know I just hope the Lord comes back. It's so bad you know it's it's got it, it's got to be the point at which Jesus comes back. But the interesting thing and this I'll boot off the the uh, the um, uh, revival uh, 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 illustration they used the first day as well. Whenever the world is at its worst, I think believers can be incredibly optimistic, because really, either it's time for Jesus' return, or actually we may be on the brink of a revival. If you look at recent history of, of revivals, and by recent I mean the last three or four hundred years. It, revival has come to the world about every 40 to 60 years. So he was talking about the revival that was in the early 18th century, the 1720s, 30s, and there. There's another revival that starts in 1794. It's, it comes out of New England, sweeps the world. There's a, another revival that takes place in 1857. It actually starts on Wall Street and jumps over to you know, Europe and that sort of thing. There, there, there are three different revivals that all occur early in the 20th century. The Welsh Revival... The, the Pentecostal revival that comes out of Azusa, Azusa Street, and also there was a Korean revival that just do amazing things. Many people believe now, as they're looking back, is that there was probably what amounts to a real revival post-World War II, in, in the wake of all the devastation. But that's where, you know, that's Billy Graham, that's Youth for Christ, Camp's Crusade, you know, many of the worldwide evangelistic organizations, I'm not sure when Scripture Union came into being, but I think they came into being somewhere in, in that same, sa same period of time. But there were amazing things that came out, and literally, there were millions of conversions across the entire world. Well, where we are right now, so m things may look bad in a lot of places uh, of, of the world, but where we are now in relation to what I think the Lord is doing in the cities is I think that we might be right on the, the, the cusp of seeing revival come to the world. The cities are, are, are really an interesting thing. You know, the world, uh, not only have, are people moving to cities in droves, and I'll mention this, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this in just a minute, but literally the world has now come to the cities. And I can give you all kinds of statistics about this, but you go to London, and basically every nation on earth is in London. You go to New York, Basically, every nation, you know, in, uh, is, is represented in New York or in L.A. or in Mumbai or in, in, in any number of these places. Literally, the world has come to these cities, and so we, we literally have access to almost every single culture, every single, you know, people group. Now, there's a few that still are, you know, uh, technically unreached, small tribal groups in certain areas. But even them, their young people, are, are moving into the cities. So they'll eventually be, t be touched by the gospel as well. Well, that's an interesting thing. We're, we're at a moment in time where, and there's a couple other things that come into us. Oh, there we go. Um, we're at a moment in time, because of what the Lord is doing in cities, where we could literally see the, the gospel be preached to every creature. 
to every crack and crevice of, our, of, of, of the entire world, not just the known world, not just the Mediterranean, but we're talking about every single place on earth we can have access to every person that they might hear, hear the gospel. That's an incredible thing. And so part of that is linked to telecommunications and media and, and, and all those kinds of things. But we, I think we're, li we're living in one of the most exciting times that, that there's ever been for Christians and particularly for Christian leaders. Because the opportunity in front of us is just absolutely amazing. So let me, let me just talk a little bit. I, I want to give you a couple of little illustrations of, of what we've seen happen. And some of these you, um, are small. You know, they're, they're small and humble kinds of things that are happening. But I think they're indicative of the beginnings <coughs> of what, what I would say are movements. So let me tell you about Paris. A number of years ago, we had been trying to, we'd been, uh, we'd been trying to figure out if we could find a way into Paris to help plant churches that would really reach uh, you know, uh, French Parisians. And uh, I'd met with a whole bunch of pastors and missionaries and parachurch workers and, and all, the, all, all that sort of thing in order to figure out a way in. And initially, we seemed to be blocked, almost like the Apostle Paul was blocked at different times from going into Asia or Bithynia or that, you know, that sort of thing. But about, about two years later, the Lord opened a door. But when we first began to interact with, in, in, uh, with uh, uh, leaders in Paris, inside the Petit Fique, which is the ring road of Paris, there's roughly 2.2 million, uh, million people. Paris as a whole is probably close to 5 million in, in the entire metro area. But inside the Petit Fique, at that point, there were only 16 French evangelical churches. There were actually re some really good African churches. There were good American churches. There were, there were some pretty good Russian churches, you know, churches from other, uh, other nations. But churches that were led by French, that were reaching French, there were only 16. And if you counted up all the people that were attending on any given Sunday in all 16 of those churches, usually it was no more than 1,400. So now maybe some of you are good at math. But 1,400 people in relation to 2.2 million people, okay? Now, now, it's worse than this, okay? It's worse. Because actually out of the 1,400, only 400 of those 1,400 lived inside the Petit Fique. So many people were living outside the city. So really, you only had 400 French people that were attending French evangelical churches that were, that were preaching the gospel. Now, you can figure out the percentages. You know, I'm, I'm not that quick to figure out the percentages. But that's not many. And Paris felt lost. In fact, Paris is often described as, this is the city where missionaries go to die. Okay? No matter where you're from, it's, it's just a, a really rough environment. <coughs> so we come along, and we've, we've had some success in, in planting so, some churches in New York City. We've been involved in a number of other places. And so as I'm talking to a number of the guys there, I, you know, I'm asking, can we help you? Uh, and and um, my, the first reaction I had, I'll, I'll mention this a little bit later as well, but the first reaction I had was uh, and a pastor very gently and kindly sat me down to kind of tell me some of these realities. But he said, well, one of the things you need to understand is that church planting in Paris and in much of Europe is a dirty word. I said, what do you mean? Well, here's what church planting means. You're a foreigner. You're going to come to our city. You're going, to, you're going to excite a number of our young people and pull them out of our, our churches 
and you're, and, and you're going to gather them together, and you're going to fail within five years, and you will leave, and none of, none of those kids will ever enter the door of one of our churches again. That's what church planting means. It's subtraction. It's not, it's not addition. But, but here's, here's, here's what had happened. About six weeks before I had that, that conversation, there was a group of pastors of, this, of, the, of these 16 churches. That actually, 12 of the pastors had, had come together. And um, every year they had a joint worship service. You know, on a Sunday, they'd all come together. So it was often 800, 900 people in a worship service, which was pretty encouraging. Then they'd all have lunch together, and then they'd have a concert in the, in the afternoon. And, um, and the pastors w- would all have lunch together. So you know, this was November. You know, it's cold, this kind of thing. They, they've just finished planning this day-long meeting uh, you know, that they were going to hold in January. They were getting up to go, and you can hopefully you can kind of picture this, but they were putting their hats on, their scarves on, their coats, their you know, getting their cell phones out, all this kind of stuff, and they're getting ready to leave. And one of the guys asked the question. He said, brothers, be, before we leave, can I ask a, a question? And I also thought, of course, of course. Uh, but, well, he said it may be a difficult question. And um, they said, fine, a- ask your question. You know, so here's the question he asked. How many of you would feel comfortable in inviting a non-Christian friend of yours to your own church? None of them raised their hand. Now you may be surprised uh, that it was a different kind of environment. But none of them, not one of the pastors would feel completely comfortable inviting a non-Christian friend of their own. And, and they actually took the hats off, the scarfs off, the coats. They sat back down. They talked for about two and a half hours. Why? And they talked about their churches being so distant culturally from any normal French Parisian that they'd almost be embarrassed. And yet all the churches are small, 30 people, 40 people, pastors are held in extremely low regard, just the opposite of, of, of in Africa. You know, pastors like a janitor, you know, something like that. And none of them felt that like they could change what they were doing, and their services and such were so inward and so kind of almost cultic that it, they weren't understandable, you know, to the normal French Parisian. <coughs> so they, you know, they, they recognized that this is, this is a major problem. So one of the guys said, well, what are we going to do? And one of the guys in jest said, you know, we probably need to start some new churches. You know, well, how would we do that? I don't know. You know, and then they all left. So a few weeks later, I call, and this is American, you know, guy, you know, and we're, we're willing to come and help you plant churches. That's why there was interest. And one of the guys agreed that, that, uh, that uh, or he, w- there, there were two guys that were interested, but only one guy had the, had the uh, possibility. Oh, thank you. By the way, Emmanuel, you did an amazing summary of yesterday's talks. I'm actually looking forward to how you summarize my talk, because I suspect that you're going to have a better outline than I have. <laughs> but wasn't that amazing this morning? I, I couldn't believe it. I don't know if he stayed all up all night doing that or whatever, but, it, but I, I thought it was genius. But um, So there was one guy that said, you know, I, I, I want to think about this. Paul Lapare is his name. His church was uh, is right near, near the Eiffel Tower in the Seventh uh, Arrondissement in, in in Paris. So he said, you know, we really need to do something. You know, can, so can you walk me through what does it mean to plant a church? How would how would you go, we go about doing this? That kind of thing. Make a long story short, he ended up agreeing, and he got his elders to agree, to go ahead and take the risk of planting a church in Paris. And a church was actually planted in their own building. Now, that doesn't sound high risk, but for them it was. 
but they've planted a church in their own, their own building that ended up within six months becoming a church of 110 people. And they had about 20 people come to Christ. Most of them were young. Some of them were university students. They were business people. You know, and they had recruited a guy who'd worked with university ministry to plant that church. Edward Nelson is, is his name. And so that church got up and running, and they were kind of amazed by this, by this whole thing. And then they ended up planting a church in the arrondissement where Edward lives. He lives in the house his grandfather built. And so he wanted and there's no evangelical church in that district of Paris at all. So he really wanted to plant a church there. So they, they began planting a church there. Within about a year, it was about 45 people. Now, that's actually good in Paris, okay? You know, and, and now it's a church of probably 150 or, or more. And then there was a third church planted just outside the Perifique. And then there was a fourth church planted in the first. And then there was a fifth church planted in the second. And then there's a, a, a sixth church planted in, 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 in the, uh, the tenth arrondissement. Now there's one in the 14th. There's one about to be planted in the 13th. Uh, make a long story short, they planted, they've, they've planted nine churches already, but they have a plan, they have a vision now to actually do much more than this. Uh, Paris is divided up into 20 arrondissements, or, or districts. Each of those are divided into quarters, Cartier. So it, it, when they, after they had planted a number of churches, and, and some other churches have been planted as well in Paris, but they, they did some research, and they determined that by that time, there were now 30 even French evangelical churches in Paris. So they said, how about if we adopt a vision? You know, how about if we adopt a goal of trying to see a church planted in every quarter within Paris? There's 30 now, you know, and, and uh, you know, so we need 50 more. Well, that's a pretty big deal. For a city where the percentage of evangelicals was so tiny to, as to, to, to almost have no power whatever, now they're on a path. I think they've planted now over 13 churches, but they will probably plant all 50 of those churches in the next 10 years, and Paris will be a very different place. And what many people are now saying is it feels like the Lord is on a move within Paris in a way that he hasn't been for 50 years or, or, or more than that. Um, and, and this is kind of what's happening in, in Europe as a whole. We've seen little groups of churches that gather together in Edinburgh, Manchester, uh, Liverpool, Birmingham, England, Berlin, Hamburg, Munich, Rome, Athens, uh, Barcelona, Madrid, Lisbon, and on and on and on. I mean, they're, they're in 53 cities now. There are small groups of leaders and churches that are coming together to plant churches within their cities with a vision to try to plant churches in at least the 100 leading cities of Europe. God's on the move. Just last week, we, we, we had a little conference in Krakow, Poland. We had more than 650 church planting leaders there. That's amazing for Europe. But there's more than 1,000 leaders that are now involved in this growing movement you know, th throughout Paris, all kinds of different denominations and networks. But they're all, they've, they've got the mindset of, we need to re-win Europe for Christ. And what they're doing is they're planting deeply gospel-centered churches that are doing exactly what Femi was just talking about. When he used the illustration of the tribal thing, you know, with the Muslims, you know, you know persecuting, boy, listen, I'm, I'm concerned about our country because the type of Christianity that we have that seems to be becoming more and more prevalent is the, is the type of Christianity that doesn't apply the gospel to what we are doing in relation to justice and mercy 
and cultural change. And it's, it, it really wrenches my, my soul. This is not the way it should be. I've always been amazed at how, how a, 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 a culture, a country, or whatever, that has been fairly heavily Christianized, how can the church, the Christians within that country, literally kill each other? Or literally persecute each other, make others suffer, oppress, oppress each other. That should not be. We've got to create a new kind of church in these cities that will literally work out all the implications of the gospel deeply so that not only are we changed individuals, but that actually our culture is, is literally changed. Let me give you another illustration of God's at work. A number of years ago, I'd, I'd stopped and visited in Dubai. A number, a number of people said, Dubai is a really important city. You know, it, you guys really need to get active there. I, you know, uh, so I said, oh, you know, and Dubai wasn't on our priority list. You know, it wasn't one of the ones that we had kind of said, these take strategic priority for us. But so I said, okay, fine, I'll go to Dubai. I met a couple leaders there. I had, and uh, the, w- the way the one guy uh, uh, talks about it, he was a university leader there, but he said, um, we, you know, you and I had a conversation, this is what he's t- saying to me, you and I had a conversation in a, in a, in a kitchen for about 20 minutes and he, and he said, you did something with salt shakers. I was giving him some sort of illustration <laughs> or whatever. And he says, that, that was the moment that I clicked. I got, we need to plant churches. You know, this is really what we need to do. Well, that led to a young guy, that American, to coming to Dubai to plant a church. His name is Dave Furman. And Dave is a fascinating guy. He's a godly man. But he is, he literally deals with pain every single moment of every day. He's got some sort of a nerve disorder. He's had, I think, 12 different operations. He literally cannot pick up his children. He can't open a door. He can't hold every, every, you know, he can't literally hug his child, his children, you know, and and Femi's dealing with something a little bit, you know, on that order. But here, here he is suffering, but he and his wife walk into the city. They plant a church. Within five years, it's a church of a thousand adults and over 400 children. They, and, so, and they're continuing to win people like crazy. In fact, the largest um, uh, um, portion of that congregation is Indian. The second, por- the second largest is F- Filipino. The third would be people from any number of uh, English-speaking qu- uh, countries across the world. Uh, the, the fourth segment is people from all over that region, Saudis, Pakistanis, you know, Iranians, a- Iraqis, Jordanians, uh, Egyptians. Many Africans within the church. I mean, it literally looks like the world, you know, in this church. They have gone on now to plant. So I don't know if you know about the Emirates, but it's it's kind of a peninsula that goes up to the Persian Gulf and is attached to the Arabian Peninsula. But they planted churches in Abu Dhabi, in Alain, uh, obviously in Dubai. They've, I think they're on their fourth church now in, in Dubai itself, in Sharjah, in Ras Al Khaimah, in Fujairah. I mean, these are all the Emirates, and they're, they're seeing gospel, pre- gospel pr- uh, preaching churches there. The one up in Russell Kaimba is fascinating to me. So here's Dave working away, you know, down in Dubai, doing, doing great things, you know, uh, and he gets a call from the king of Russell Kaimba, the sheikh of Russell Kaimba. Actually, the king doesn't actually call him. It's one of his servants or whatever. But he, he's asked to come up to Russell Kaimba because the sheikh wants to give him a piece of property. He's a Muslim, a committed Muslim. The sheikh wants to give him a piece of property to build a church, a church building, in order for them to establish a Christian church in Ras al I mean, it's, it's crazy. This is the first time that David ever met a king. <laughs> so literally, he gives all the instructions 
you can only say this, you can only look this way, you know, all, the, all these kinds of things. But the Lord's at work in, in the Emirates. But, but here, here's what's interesting about the Emirates, and I, I think the Lord has a sense of humor in some of these things. Um, but um, I'm, I'm probably going to talk too long, by the way, but uh, uh, story, story. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, now, now, now I lost my train of thought there. Um, where was I? Oh, what's interesting about the Emirates, good, thank you, appreciate that, is it's, it's, a, it's a Muslim country, and it's illegal to proselytize Emiratis. If you're from the Emirates, it's illegal to witness to them and try to bring them to Christ. But the interesting thing is uh, the Emirati population of the Emirates is only 18%. So 82% of the people are from somewhere else. It's completely legal to proselytize other Muslims. So if you're from Saudi, if you're, you're from Yemen, Oman, Pakistan, Indonesia, whatever, you really have carte blanche. So they, they can actually reach all kinds of people from all, all over the world. They can train them there, and the most of them will go back to their own countries to plant churches. So what's happening right now, there's more than half a dozen churches that are being planted in Iran because Iranians who came to Christ in Dubai and have, are being trained by these guys are going back in. There are now at least two Pakistanis that I know. But I think both are from Lahore, who, are, who, who I think they were converted somewhere else, but they've come to Dubai for training. They're going back to their own country where a missionary really can't go in, and they're, they're, they're planting churches. They recently sent a guy to Beirut, Lebanon, a Lebanese guy, trained in Dubai, planting a church there. They're, they're, there's a core group waiting for someone to come and pastor them or to, to create the church in Kuwait City. And so here's, here's what I think is a bit of, of irony. So have you heard of the Burj Dubai or the Burj Khalifa? Okay, it used to be called the Burj Dubai, but the sheikh ran out of money, so he had to borrow money from his cousin, and so his cousin's name is on it rather than him. But here you have the tallest building in the world, and it literally is like the Tower of Babel. Let us make a name for myself let, or for ourselves. There's no reason to build vertical in Dubai at all. There's sand spreading out as far as you can imagine. But here they build the tallest building world literally to make a name for himself. But here's, here's the Tower of Babel perhaps reversed. I think the Lord might use Dubai as the place from which Islam is upended. Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, I, I, I just find this amazing. But literally, we could see dozens and dozens of cities be deeply influenced for Christ, for Christ from what is going on there and places where most of us just can't go we, and we can't literally publicly give witness uh, to, to Christ. New York, I'll tell this one shortly. Redeemer begins being started in 1989. Uh, Tim and Kathy come to the city. We, our denomination, had tried to plant a church in New York City. It had failed. I'm sure the guy was a good guy. I'm sure he was godly. I'm sure he had right doctrine. But I don't think he had any, any real understanding of how to work in New York. Tim was part of a committee to try to select a, a guy that we could send to New York that would plan a successful church. He, he goes up. He's living in Philadelphia, which is about an hour and a half train right away. He, he starts going up to New York every Friday, sits, sits in a restaurant for about 12 hours, meeting with New Yorkers every 30 minutes, uh, Christians, non-Christians, Jews, you know, um, uh, homosexuals, um, you know, uh, theater people, 
fine arts people, opera and, and symphony and all that kind of thing, just trying to understand what drives the heart of the New Yorker. What, you know, understanding the heart there so, so he could figure out how could the gospel find a pathway into, the, into that person's heart. So he's learning a lot about New York. He brings the, the information back to the committee. The first three guys they select, you know, we want you, no, we want you, no, we want you, no. Then the committee says, this is a problem of being, being put on the committee, by the way. So then the committee says, Tim, we think you may be the guy for New York. And Tim had never lived in a city before, really. He'd lived in the outskirts of Philadelphia, but he wasn't an urban guy. But, but uh, and he, the Lord convinces Tim that indeed God was calling him to, to New York. So there's a side story. But he comes home to Kathy, and Kathy's a, Kathy's a very strong woman. Some of you may have strong wives as well. Uh, Kathy is very self-assured and very strong. And so, uh, so Tim comes back to Kathy in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and, and he says, Kathy, I think the Lord may be, may be calling me to plant a church in New York City. So Kathy's response was, okay, you can go. But the boys and I are staying right here in Philadelphia. <laughs> well, it took about another three months for the Spirit to actually convince Kathy that the Lord was calling them to plant a, New York, uh, a church in New York City. And New York City was, was really a place that was, it wasn't devoid of the gospel completely, but there was very little witness for the gospel, particularly in Manhattan. So the statistics then were less than one-half of one percent of New Yorkers living in Manhattan attended any kind of evangelical church in 1989. Twenty years later, we do a study, 2009, there have been a hundred churches planted in Manhattan since, that, since those days. And by the way, the tragic event of 9-11 actually helped to bring a new positive focus on New York so that people and resources came to the city to plant new churches. And people began looking at New York not as this horrible, arrogant place you know, that dominates the rest of us, but actually a place where we need to go and rescue people. We, we really need to see people get saved, churches planted, that sort of thing. But so, so 20 years later, 100 churches have been planted in, in this part of Manhattan. And the, the attendance, now this, again, this may not sound like much, but the attendance of people that live, uh, that live in Manhattan had gone up from less than one half a percent to 3.5%. Five years later, we do another study. And the attendance of, of Manhattanites in evangelical churches had gone to 5.5%. That's amazing. God's on a move. Now, several hundred churches have been planted throughout the five boroughs of New York. It's really become a movement. And, and you can see churches of every stripe. There are Senegalese churches. There are churches from uh, East Timor. There are churches from you know, pretty much any country around the world. There are, n there are now churches in New York. They're, reaching, they're trying to reach every neighborhood within New York. The goal, really, our initial goal has been to try to help plant as many as 1,000 churches in New York even though we know that New York probably needs 5,000 new churches, okay? You know, so it's happening in New York. It's happening in, in the rest of North America. One more, and then I'll move on to my next point, China. You know, many of us have heard about the tremendous things that God has been doing in China since, you know, the, 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 the wall was opened. Uh, uh, the, but recently, there's been this mass migration to cities. So in China, every... I think it's every year, more than 20 million people move to cities in China. That's, that's a crazy n a number, number of people. But most of the churches that came into being came to being in the countryside, in the villages, that sort of thing. 
as people are moving in, many of the people that were working out in the villages have tried to, they've, they've moved in the city and they've tried to do ministry in the same way and it, it wasn't working. The dynamics of the city are just different. You gotta work in different ways. And so my colleague, Jay Kyle, came alongside a group of leaders 20 years, 18 years ago, or something like that now. They've seen more than 1,500 churches be planted in China. They've got a network that's called Grace to the City that is completely Chinese-led, and it is absolutely just running wild in the cities of China. They're responding to the, to the challenge of their cities. And that g has given rise to a movement throughout all of, of, of Asia, in including India. You know, one of our brothers, uh, some of you may have met him, Ru. Uh, Ru, Ru is a, an American Indian uh, of, of Indian heritage, but he's been working in at least seven of the leading cities uh, of India. But it's just amazing what, what, what God is happening. And a lot of it is happening through the cities. All right. The opportunity is amazing. We could literally reach the world for Christ. And the Lord will likely use the cities in order to do that. Let me talk about the challenges, okay? And I was just with some brothers over in Accra. Uh, Samuel is here. And what there were, there were probably 10 or 12 uh, key leaders from a number of different countries and cities uh, in, in West Africa there. And I at one point, I challenged them with a kind of a, qu a question that I'm going to give to you as well. But I, but, but I talked about there are at least three major challenges that I think particularly you guys face. So even speaking to people here in Lagos, three major challenges that it'll be interesting to see if you can rise to meet these challenges. But one that you, I'm sure you know a good bit about this, but it's urbanization, okay? And I'm sure you've heard the rhetoric, so I'm not gonna give you all the stats, but basically in 2005, we crossed a major milestone in the history of, the, uh, of, the, of civilization. First time ever in the history of the world that more than 50% of the people living in the world live in cities. And that's increasing. Uh, by 2050, and th these were some of the stats I'd given to, to Femi, here in Lagos, you know, we're, you're now about 21 million. People can argue about what that figure is. But probably by 2050, you'll be 45 million. And some of the stats that I heard from Toby the other day, it could be that you could actually, by the end of the century, be 80 million. Okay? How do you deal with that? And by the way, almost all the cities of this, of this kind of swath of Africa, north of South Africa, south of Sahara, all of them are predicted to double every 10 to 15 years. So Nairobi, which I think is 7 million, will likely become 14 million. Kinshasa, which is about 16 million right now, predicted to be 32 million. That too, th that, by the way, they're gonna rival Lagos, okay? So I if you're competing, you're gonna compete with Kinshasa. Kinshasa may be over 80 million by the, en by the end of, 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 of this century as well. Massive numbers of people Moving in the city, being born in the city, it, it's growing like crazy. So, so uh, you know, I'll talk about the challenge in just a minute. The second issue, the second challenge is globalization, okay? So even as the Chinese churches that were moving from the countryside to try to work in the cities had problems, one of the issues, and th there's many good things about globalization, by the way. I'm not, I'm not down on globalization, but there's negatives as well. But one of the problems of globalization is it's changing the culture. It is changing all of our young people. They think differently, they relate differently, and therefore many, mu much of the methodology that the church has used and that, was, that, was, that, that really has been effective for the last 100 years or more 
is no longer effective. Because the culture has changed, we actually have to change our methods. We have to change our approach. We have to change our apologetics. We have to change how we go at, at people with the gospel. It's not the same as in my generation. In fact, let me, let me give you a, 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 an illustration of this. When I was in Chicago when Willow Creek was created. I'm a baby boomer, okay, suburban white guy. When Willow Creek was created, now I was actually a youth pastor at another church, but when Willow Creek was created and the first time I went to it, it was like, wow, this was perfect for me. It wasn't perfect for a lot of other people, but it was, it was the most dynamic thing I'd ever seen in my life and it was incredible. It was an incredible evangelistic tool. But 20 years later, the culture had changed. And no longer were people baby boomers. And they didn't want slick, soft seats, you know, overproduced, you know, ki kinds of things. None of that stuff is bad, by the way, but it doesn't fit. At one point, Willow Creek tried to plant a church in Paris in 1990. Now, I don't know how many of you know anything about Paris, but. Paris is one of the most hostile cities to the gospel on the face of the planet. Willow Creek takes the baby boomer, North American, suburban model and tries to plunk it down right in the heart of Paris. From what I understand, they spent more than $2 million trying to plant a church in, in Paris. And I don't know if you have this expression in Africa, but in, in North America, it's a little bit like that high-pitched tone. Uh, you know, we have, we have this expression, nails on a chalkboard. And it just, oh, you're just like, it, it's like that. Well, that's what Willow Creek in the middle of Paris was. It was a little bit like Euro Disney. At first, the, the French just hated it. It was everything that they, that, that they hated. Well, that's what Willow Creek tried to do. And their methodology didn't work in Paris because the environment was really different. Globalization is rapidly changing Lagos. I, I've seen it just in the last couple of years. You know, the whole landscape is changing. It's going to change Accra. It's going to change Abidjan. It's going to change uh, Dakar. It's changing Nairobi. It's changing all, all, all these cities. And you guys are going to have to figure out how you respond to that. Can you, in essence, the old wineskins may not work anymore. And I mean that in a, in a positive sense. You're going to have to figure out new ways to, to, to communicate the gospel to the people living within the city. The third issue, and this is probably not the best word, so you can supplement it with, with other words if you want. But the third challenge is secularization. Or, or, or let me put it this way. There is growing irreligion. People opting out of church. So it may not be secularization as a kind of a philosophical idea. It's rather that they're no longer religious. The church isn't relevant. I don't want to have anything to do with that, 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 that kind of thing. We're facing a crisis in the US right now. Um, we had a, a, a foundation did a study that they presented us with about a year ago. And within this study, and so it was a study of what was going on with churches in North America, in, in the U.S. actually. But within, within this study, one of, the th one of the things that came out was that they're predicting that in, that in the next 30 years, we will lose approximately 30 to 35 million Gen Zs from the church. These are kids that are in the church right now that may be as old as 21, 20, 19. That's the Gen Z generation. But they're, even though they're in the church now, they're going to disaffiliate. Not because of any controversy, not because of any scandal, but because simply they don't think the church and its message is relevant. They're not going to be there. And as far as I know, almost no church is responding effectively. What we've done, and I want to caution you against this, by the way, 
what we've done, the, the last couple iterations of what's been happening in church is we've essentially been, we, we've created reactive models. So, so, so <laughs> the way this looked like 15, 20 years ago was, you know, you want to you plan an effective church? Put an earring in your ear, get tatted up a little bit, get a kicking band, and then preach really hard at them, bang them right in the nose, okay? And it was church cool. It was, you were doing church in a better way or a cooler way or a more relevant way than the church down the street. But actually, all they were reaching, or not all, because that's an overstatement, but they were reaching people who were disaffected from the church and they were coming back in. Most of those churches actually weren't reaching those that had never had any experience with, with Christianity. We have got to change what we're doing. We've got to think through the culture in very much the same way as a missionary who goes to a completely foreign culture and he or she looks at that culture and says, okay, what do I need, how do I need to communicate the gospel here? What does it need to, need to look like? We need to do that with our own culture. And the problem for all of you and for all of us is when you're in the context, you often can't see the context as clearly as what you need to, need to see it. So in one sense for us over the years, one of the, the best kind of profile for a church planner was somebody who had been raised in the culture and then ha having left the culture for two years, three years, or whatever, for education or for something else, they come back in their culture and they say, oh, man, I didn't realize it was like this. They see their culture with, 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 with clearer eyes. So those, those three trends, urbanization, globalization, uh, secularization, how and, and maybe will you respond? So let, let me just take Legos and just push a little bit. If you're going to add, if not, maybe not you, if the city is going to add 25 million people in the next 30 years, how many churches need to be planted in order to either win those people to Christ or get them in incorporated in a gospel-preaching church? 20 million. I, you know, and I know there's some pretty big churches here in Nigeria. You know, and actually, I think some of them are not all that helpful. You know, that largeness actually kind of works against a number of things. But how many churches of even of 200 people do you need to add in order to reach 25 million people? It's a lot. In North America, I'll come back to that, where not only is, is the problem we're going to lose the Gen Zs, 35 million perhaps of them, but right now uh, the, there are about 4,000 new churches that are being planted in the U.S. every year. Sounds good, doesn't it? 4,000. 3,700 close. There's only a net gain of 300. The closure rate of churches is supposed to rise to 5,500 a year uh, in the next five years. So we'll actually be on the downside. What this study is suggesting is that if we want to, e even if we just want to return to the proportionate representation of evangelicals in the culture that we had in the early 1980s, we need to plant 8,000 churches a year for the next 30 years. Now, again, I'm not really good in math, but I think that means we need 240,000 church planters. 240,000 church planters. Where are we going to get them? Well, I'll tell you where we're going to get them, actually. And this is kind of the greater challenge. By 2050, Lagos, or, or I think it's really Nigeria, the population of Nigeria, it will be you know, one of the most populous nations in the world, only, only third to China and India. Okay, so there'll be more people living in this country than any other country on, uh, you know, on the face of the planet. But here's what's interesting. 80%, perhaps as many as 80% of the population will be under the age of 20. 
So what are the implications of that for children's ministry, for youth ministry, for university ministry? And that's where you're going to get your church planners, by the way. So you guys need to double down on children's ministry. You know, I've heard so many good things about Scripture Union, particularly in, in Ghana. I don't know how present it was here, but it's amazing how many of the leaders in Ghana all came to Christ through Scripture Union. And now they're the pastors. They're the, they're the other church planners. We need to, you need to ramp up children's ministry in just a huge way. We need to honor children's workers. We need to, we need to raise up youth ministry leaders and honor them. Not, not all of them aspire to, to, to be senior pastors or the, the big man type thing. We need to raise up all kinds of university workers that can go to the universities and literally win hundreds and thousands of some of the young, sharpest, you know, most able, able leaders within your country and see them enter ministry. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a full-orbed kind, of kind of a challenge. So it's, it's not going to be easy. As masses of people move to your cities, as the culture changes in, in, in relation to globalization, and as secularization, unfortunately, as people become more wealthy, educated, more empowered, if you will, many don't think they need the church anymore. It's all the things that Scripture says. It kind of puff it, knowledge puffeth up. You know, wealth you know, makes you think you have no need. I worked, in, I, I worked in one of the, story, story, I, <laughs> I worked in one of the most wealthy uh, areas of the entire world when I started planning a daughter church redeemer in New York. It was called the North Shore of Long Island. And yesterday I made kind of reference to this, but it was so wealthy that, that it was kind of beyond imagination. One spring, one of the guys in the church received a bonus from his, of his, from his company of $365 million dollars. That wasn't his salary. So he, he, already, he had a salary. He had a huge mansion, a house, and all that kind of stuff. Just his bonus alone was $365 million. So m many of those people think, I have no need. So uh, who was make, making reference to, uh, to um, uh, uh, Bill Gates and, and uh, um, yeah, uh, Warren Buffett and I forget uh, the, the other one. How can you communicate the gospel to those people? The prosperity the theology stuff, it doesn't actually work with them. Okay? And some of the other kind of means that we, that, we, that we go at people with, it doesn't really work. But let me tell you about wealthy people, really wealthy people, particularly men, but increasingly now it's women as well. They are among the loneliest people in the entire world. So this guy, who's actually from Sri Lanka, so when he and, his, he, he and his sister and his parents came, came to the U.S., they literally had $370 to their name. And Sanjay learned, uh, you know, how to code. And, he, and eventually he became the CEO of the, of the second largest software company in the entire world. You use their software every day. It's, it, it's actually Computer Associates, which provides software for all telecommunications, airlines, you know, all these kinds of things that, you, that, that, that we use all the time. You don't know them, you know, but but they're huge. So Sanjay had, uh, had arisen from nothing to there. But, but when I got to know Sanjay, it, it was really sad. He did not know whether anyone was his friend. Because, you know, he had vice presidents. They all wanted something from him. That's a transactional relationship. He had competitors that were looking to steal his secrets, this kind of thing. There, there was no one near him that he knew loved him for who he really was or, or that, he, that he could know loved him you know, for that. Uh, anytime his children played outside and they had this huge gated compound, you know, this kind of thing, 
he had two security guards with guns to protect his children for fear that someone would kidnap his children for ransom. You know, his wife could never have anybody but company employees in their home for fear that somebody was there to steal industrial secrets. I think there's a reason why the rich young ruler comes alone to Jesus. There's a reason that Nicodemus comes at night alone. It, you know, all, the, all these kinds of things that the, the very rich of the world are unbelievably isolated, and they are more needy than even many times the poorest of the poor. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge. As your, as your culture, Nigeria is becoming incredibly wealthy. You will be the powerhouse of most of, most of Africa. The challenge for you guys to relate to some of these individuals is going to be incredible. So you, you've got to really gear it up. Am I running out of time? I'm good? Wh when do I have to quit? Tell me. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, good. So, so here's what our conclusion is. Um, if, if, if we're going to respond to the worldwide phenomenon of, of urbanization, of cities becoming the most influential places in the entire world, and the opportunity that we could re really reach, uh, reach the world for Christ, I think there's at least, we need to take a two-pronged approach. There's two things that are probably the most important things that, 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 that we should be about. And this is what I wanna, want you to be, uh, be about in Nigeria. It's, it's not for me to say, here's what I want you to be about. Th this is what I think the Lord would have you, have you be about. So the first is this, and it may sound almost counterintuitive, but we need to be about prayer. The only way that spiritual awakening comes is when the Holy Spirit is unleashed. And time and time and time again, we see it in history, almost every single revival was started primarily by prayer. It's prayer that actually ends up resulting in lamentation and repentance, which leads to real renewal. So we, you need to, we need to start a movement of prayer that literally sweeps across the entire world, that sees the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit literally poured out. If you want to reach 25 more million people, as they, as they move into Lagos, you need to pray, and you need to get your people to pray, and, and we need to get other, uh, others to pray. That's one thing. Second thing is I think more than ever, we need to collaborate. These challenges are so immense. I mean, when, when, when we're talking about the North America thing, so we just organized this fellowship. Really, we didn't want to, you know, because there's so many good churches, so many good networks, so many good denominations in the U.S. Why do you need something else? But no one else was really bringing focus to the cities. And no one else was really bringing networks and denominations leaders together in some sort of a concerted way to work in their cities. So you know, J uh, Jeremiah is involved in a great network within Houston. It's called the Houston Church Planning Network. And you know, hope, hopefully he'll tell you the story at some point. But, and I don't know the whole story. But I, it sounds to me like it was an organic uh, gathering or began as a gather, ga gathering of churches and leaders who really deeply cared about their city. And then they figure out, what should we do? And that's happening in all kinds of cities. That's what it happened in Phoenix. It's happening in LA right now. It's happening in a number, number of the North American cities. But the challenge of, can we raise up 240,000 churches to be planted in the US? And that won't win everybody to Christ in the US. That's only gonna get us back to where we were 40 years ago, okay? But it, no one church, no one uh, 
network, no one denomination, no one kind of what, what some call, their, call themselves movements or whatever. None of them can do it by themselves. If we're going to reach every kind of person, we actually need every kind of church that shares the historic biblical understanding of the gospel. And we're not talking about those other ones that, that Femi was listing. But we need Pentecostals at the table. We need the Baptists at the table. Even the Baptists we need. I'm Presbyterian, so. By the way, you know that we're all going to be Presbyterian in heaven, right? You, you realize that? You've got to read Revelation 4. You know what Revelation 4 says, right? And the 24 presbyters are gathered around the throne. <laughs> so the Lord's going to correct all your doctrine. You're all going to agree with me. <laughs> Obviously, I'm joking. We need the Anglicans at the table. We need the Methodists at the table. Because it, it's interesting, the Lord, the Lord has raised up different kind of sectors of the, of the, of the kingdom when, 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 a, when certain kinds of people are not reached. He seems to work supernaturally. Say, okay, well, let, if, if you're not going to reach the, the, the miners and the prisoners, I'm going to send George Whitfield and John Wesley. And they're not going to preach in your churches. They're going to go out to the mining camps, and they're going to preach right there. And they'll see hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ. You know, Whitfield comes to Georgia. Georgia was a prison colony. And, and Whitfield, you know, uh, devotes himself to Georgia. And then Wesley comes along as well. And, and basically the reason why the South is predominantly Christian today is because of that, those kinds of efforts. So we need the whole kingdom present within these cities if we're going to try to reach every kind of person. Um, story, story. The, um, I, was, I was talking to Jeremiah uh, the, uh, yesterday, I guess it was, about this. But he was asking me about um, in the history of the development of City City, were there certain points at which you know, you got, kind of got new thoughts or whatever, inflection points. And for us, there was one that was, that was although this sounds humorous, it actually was, was quite serious. There were three of us that were planting daughter churches of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. That's the church that Tim Keller had, had planted. This is back in 95. And uh, uh, as we were beginning to meet together just to try to figure out how do you plant a church in a city like this, how do you respond to some of these challenges, that kind of thing, we found a number of guys joining us. And first, there was a Baptist guy. Uh, he was ac he'd actually been a Russian atheistic Jew. That's a long story. But he, he, he joined us. And then there was another guy. He was, he was Baptist as well. And then we had a couple of Pentecostal guys join us. And then we had a Reformed church guy join us. And then we had a, a few others. Pretty quick, there was about 12 of us that were meeting together. And this sounds silly, but there, there was a point for us at which, American expression again, the penny dropped for us. There was no way that a group of white, upper-middle-class, overeducated, cognitively oriented, emotionally reserved, I would say culturally myopic, um, reformed, covenantal Presbyterians were ever going to reach New York City for Christ. We knew we could reach certain kinds of people in the city, but probably 95% of New Yorkers would never, ever be touched by us. But actually, the Baptists reach different kinds of people. Now, these aren't mutually exclusive by any means. And these, you know, all of us should stretch to reach every kind of person that we can. The Pentecostals tend to reach a different kind of person. You know, this, this group and that group, whatever, they all tend to reach kind of different, different, uh, different types of people in the city. And this was an awakening to us 
that we really needed to come alongside of other brothers and sisters in Christ that share understanding of the gospel but might differ on these secondary issues, whether it's the way you baptize or when you baptize or those kinds of things, or if you speak in tongues or don't speak in tongues or, or when you think fillings of the Spirit come. or you know, any, There's so many different things, how you do communion, whether or not your preacher wears a dress. You know, that's, that's a joke. <laughs> I, ki- I kid my Anglican friends in England all the time about wearing dresses, you know. So, but, um, but, but anyways, we need each other in order to reach these cities. We need, we, we need, we need cl- uh, collaboration. Now, let me, I'm going to skim through, you know, this whole next section. It's actually a whole lecture that I, that I tend to give fairly, op- op- uh, fairly often. But let me, if I, if I will, just give you highlights about um, uh, w- how we think about this, this can and needs to occur. So how do you create the kind of fellowship or, if you will, transdenominational network in a city that could actually give rise to a real movement of the gospel in that city so that at least there's the possibility that every, every kind of person could be reached. And I could talk about this later if you want. The two most important things, I think, are one, relationships, and secondly, this is beyond prayer, and, and, and vision, okay? Relationship, I think, is un, uh, un, unbelievably, un, unbelievably important because if there's not sincere relationships, it's really hard to do anything together. But it's, it's interesting that vision often allows leaders to come together. I, I think vision is just an incredibly important factor. But a, a shared vision for your city to have greater influence of the gospel of the city, a shared vision for evangelism, a shared vision for planting multiple churches and various kinds of commu- uh, 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 various kinds of churches, a vision for greater mercy and justice. We can all find ways to cooperate around those, even though we may be, co- be coming from different, different uh, um, traditions and, and the like. Uh, so relationships and vision. The second kind of issue is, in order to create this kind of a thing, you've got to uh, identify key leaders in the city that are humble enough and willing enough to work together. Now, obviously, they've got to be gospel-centered. You've got to be on the same plane in relation to those things. But many leaders will not cooperate together in a city. And particularly, and I, I'm, not, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure why this is the case, but generally speaking, the biggest churches uh, don't really cooperate together. And, and I don't think necessarily for sinful reasons. But a lot of the, lot of the really big churches are so busy, and they've got kind of an empire under themselves that they neither see the need to cooperate with others or collaborate with others, nor do they even see the possibility w- that they could spend the time to do it. So in our experience, kind of mid-level-sized churches and smaller are often willing to come together. Let's pray together. Let's talk about what we can do in our city. Let's, let's plant churches together. We can share training and those kinds of things. You know, but we can do a whole lot of things together within a, w- within a city. So it's about identifying the right leaders, getting them in a room together, and then developing a shared vision for, for, for the city. It's, it's, uh, one of the things that's kind of a danger point here, I, and I probably shouldn't be uh, go, uh, going too deep here, but if one church or one small group of leaders kind of creates a vision and then you present it to others and try to get them to buy into it, it rarely works. So at the beginning, what we, t- what we tend to say is you need to get the right people at the table right from the very beginning. So the various ethnicities, the very tribal, various—I I don't know what the divisions are within within uh, 
Lagos here, but the various tribal groups or various denominational groups, it's important to get the five or six or seven key leaders from all those together first before you create a plan. Otherwise, they'll never own it because really they need to own it. They need to, they need to be committed to love their city and to love their city with their, with their, their brothers in Christ. Um, the kinds of leaders that we usually look for are leading pastors, other Christian leaders in the city, business people particularly, in, in particular that, that uh, have a real uh, mindset, mercy and justice leaders, theological education leaders, and parachurch uh, evangelistic type leaders. Those are the kind of people that, that you need. Third, in order to, to really get things going, you have to, I would say, build a platform for church planting. And that at least entails a positive mindset about planting. You, you actually have to make the argument for why do, why do new churches need to be planted? And actually, the arguments are, are, are readily accessible. We can send you information that kind of give you that argument. The family can give you, give you the argument why plant a new church rather than just you know, work in the existing church, that sort of thing. But then you also need to create some basis from which if, if a young person is aspiring to plant a church, how would they go about doing it? Who are they going to do it under? How can they be trained? How can they get the knowledge to figure out? You know, and, and so for the most part, what we've been trying to promote in, in all the cities is for the group of churches to create a shared church planters training program that, help, you know, that gives, gives the information that, 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 that they need. And it, it's easier to do that to, to, together than, than singly. And then um, fourth, uh, even as you begin to think about your city, and pray about your city, it's very helpful actually to look at your city and say, where do we need to, to have churches? Where are, where are there not churches or the right kinds of churches to be planted in the city? And then begin looking for young leaders among you. You guys need to actively look within your church, and maybe some of you guys are the ones that are being looked at. But, but in essence, you need to begin to identify young leaders and say, listen, you should think about planting a church. I could see you working in this community. I think you've got the gifts, abilities, or whatever. And, and th this has to be sincere, by the way. So it's got to be real spiritual discernment. But actually, many of you that are, that are the older leaders, you need to really be promoting among your young leaders the idea of, of, of planting churches and try to ra uh, raise uh, uh, cause them to rise. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to simply stop there, and maybe we can deal with some of the stuff in, in Q&A later because I think we're over time. Okay. Thank you, brothers.